So Pastor Paul got a new sound bar this week. Found a good deal on a sound bar, made that purchase, took it home, and then tried to, of course, connect it to the television. Now, you've had this experience, perhaps, whether it's a sound bar, a television, or even your computer. So I set up the new sound bar as best as I'm able, and it doesn't work. But I know that it's not broken. I know that it's a connection problem. So I go into the TV, and I go into the settings, and it asks me a question as I've tinkered around with it trying to get the sound bar to work. It asks me, would you like to restore the original factory settings or would you like to customize your settings? And I thought to myself, now that's exactly what I've been preaching about at GPC all summer long. You see, we believe at GPC that humanity was created, Adam and Eve were created with these original factory settings, right? But ever since Adam and Eve, this doctrine of sin that the Bible has given us has showed us and taught us that all of our knobs and switches and dials are turned off of the original factory settings set by the manufacturer, set by the designer. And some of us are turned a few tick marks to the right. Some of us are turned a few tick marks to the left on all the subjects of life. And we've been looking at some of those subjects this summer. Subjects of worship, subjects of work, our work ethic, our rest ethic, our relationships with spouses, with children, family members, with friends, with community. And then last week we talked about the subject of of appetite. That even because of sin, our appetites, those knobs and switches and dials, They're all turned off of their original factory settings and and some people eat too much. And some people don't eat enough. And there are disorders and diseases and we believe it's all because of how sin has affected the earth and has affected humanity. So each week we've been trying very practically to take real life issues and to apply the gospel to them thinking through what we call a biblical world and life view. And today we come to another appetite, another subject. And it's a tough one. It's a hard moment to stand up front and center of a room full of people on this subject. But it too is an appetite. And it's the appetite of sexuality. It's not only an appetite, but it is an appetite For sure. And this morning, our passage, we have several, but the one we'll launch from is it's a lesson of an unbridled sexual appetite. And it's taken from the undisciplined life of King David, the one who was called the man after God's own heart. So, whoever you are, wherever you are, I think you'll find God's word speaks directly to all of us. So give your attention to 2 Samuel chapter 11 verses 1 through 4. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, 
King David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent messengers to get her. And she came to him, and he slept with her. That's just a portion of a much longer text, but I think it's enough for us to begin to consider this subject. Let's pray for the Lord's blessing of it. Lord, would you take this most sensitive subject for all of us who are gathered here? And Lord, knowing that there are likely wounds in this room, some are old wounds that maybe have healed, others may be newer wounds that have not yet healed. But whatever the case, Lord, would you bring the balm of the gospel and healing from the hurt of sin in the form of timeless truth, what you have given us in your word and in your son. And so we ask that and pray it for each and every one of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Blueprints. That's old language, that's outdated language, but when I was a little boy, I remember being told that my grandfather um, was known in the community as the blueprint man. And the blueprint man, I was told, is that's what you call the man in charge of the project. And some of you maybe have used that term, but he's the blueprint man, they would point. He's the one who knows what's going on at, at the work project. So blueprints, for those of you who are unfamiliar with that language, was the old method of drawing up designs and patterns and architectural plans that could be reproduced efficiently to communicate effectively the architect designer's intention for the engineers and constructors to build. And those plans were to be carefully and precisely followed from the foundation to the roof. Blueprints, architectural plans. It's a very real sense in what we have in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2 are the blueprints of human sexuality. This is the designer's plans, the designer's intentions for how this thing called sex is supposed to work. So I have four things I'm going to say this morning, and just to help you track, we're going to talk about the good, the bad, the ugly, and then the beautiful of sexuality. So first, the good. The good is at creation. That God created human sexuality as a good gift. Not as a bad gift. Not as something to make you blush or make you embarrassed or for you to be ashamed of. 
but as a good gift. Listen to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, and then verses 21 to 25. The Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. There we have what we could very easily put into a definition of marriage as it's given to us in the blueprints. If you put all that together from the church's historic perspective, we would have as believers in God and His Word a definition of marriage that sounds like this. One man and one woman united together in a mutual, reciprocal, and lifelong covenantal relationship with all the duties, responsibilities, and joys entitled to their holy matrimony. Now that's packed. There's a lot there. And the awkward thing is, today in our culture, my saying that by some would be considered what? Hate speech. That's the culture in which we live. Much of what I'm going to say this morning, as it comes from the Bible, would be considered old and outdated and even as hate speech, violence against people who think otherwise. But for the church, for the Christian church, that is what has defined our understanding of marriage and family under God, the nuclear family and all that God created it to be. A few more things we can say. That man and wife in God's pattern are equal in value. Man and wife are opposite in gender. And man and wife are united as one. And there is the imagery and the language of sexuality and a part of the gift of it. So in creation, we're given this definition of, of marriage. But secondly, we're also prescribed boundaries for sexuality. Sex was given and it had limits. It had boundaries for who were to enjoy that gift of God. Sex was supposed to produce joy as it bound a man and a wife together as one. And then, of course, sex reproduced life. It created offspring for the future. So God gives this definition of a family, and He puts boundaries to protect what He says is holy, and He gives a purpose for it. These are the blueprints of what God has given His people 
And in these blueprints, when followed this way, there would be no guilt, no shame, no regret. All of it would be good and for God's glory. That's the good. That's the good of human sexuality. This is not embarrassing to talk about. It is the way things were supposed to be. It could be called the classic view of sexuality, or our world would call it old-fashioned hooey. Right? Outdated thinking. But if you're a Christian-thinking person with a biblical world and life view, these are our blueprints. These are the ways it was supposed to be. But of course, you know, that's Genesis 1 and 2, and that horrific and, and tragic event of Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of humanity into sin has wrecked havoc and chaos on everything and everyone. And there's your second point. Because of the fall into sin, all of our appetites and desires are now fallen and distorted by sin. This is our biblical world and life view. This is how we see things as reality. It's not that some of our appetites and desires are distorted by sin. All of them are. And your knob and switch and dial might be turned in a different direction or to, to a, a lesser number of tick marks, but none of them are at factory settings for any of us. They've all been customized by sin. And that is a sobering view of, for every one of us to have. It's not that we've got it right and that our factory settings are in place. Our tick marks are just off in different ways than other people. Our knobs and switch and dials are not perfectly set, but they may not be as extremely reset as other people's. C.S. Lewis says this, the old classic Christian rule is this. Marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or total abstinence. This is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts or our appetites that obviously either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct as it now is has gone wrong. It's not the way it's supposed to be. One or the other of these is true. But of course, being a Christian, he says, I think it is the instinct and appetite which has gone wrong. He has a Christian worldview. That's the worldview that we would share in this church. There's something wrong with our appetites, with our instincts. They are all bending away from their created default mode. So now the bad and the ugly, what the fall of sin has produced in our world and in us, in every one of us. Two things. First, the bad. The bad of human sexuality could be called unkept boundaries. Those boundaries that God gave for human sexuality to protect it, to keep it holy that we read about in Genesis chapter 2. That is what leads us to our text in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and all that event of David's folly, David's sin, is that he did not keep the boundaries that God had given creation 
and given his people. And in David and in the life of David, we see a picture of the progressive nature of sin. There is an entire sermon on that subject to learn from David, and that's not the point of the sermon this morning. But very quickly, some of that progression and learning from David's folly would be this. Three things. David was in the wrong place, at the wrong time, and with the wrong people. I do want to comment on each of those quickly and and make an application. David was in the wrong place. The passage begins with the author in 2 Samuel 11 saying that in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David was at home in Jerusalem. And so the picture given here is that David is not where he is supposed to be. And it's the wrong place. And more than that, it's at the wrong time. And some commentators believe that what you see here is a sloppy, undisciplined King David. It says he's lying on his couch bed, and it's the end of the workday. It's the time when people bathe and prepare to go to bed. And the picture is that David is getting up at the end of the workday, walking out on his roof in his pajamas, been a lazy, sloppy man all day in his couch bed, and now temptation arises. And all the men, you remember where the men are? All the army of the Lord is gone. And so David is in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he's with the wrong people. He's with other people's wives, essentially. Essentially, all of the men are gone, and all their wives are left at home. And it is a picture of folly. It is the absence of wisdom. It is the absence of discipline. And yet, this is King David a man after God's own heart. And so every one of us should be cautioned. There's wisdom in being in the right place at the right time with the right people. Now, to be more practical in my application, uh, for single people, I'm thinking of college students, unmarried people, people not yet married, there's a lot of wisdom to try to apply from the folly of, of David. Being in the right place at the right time with the right people. And I've said this a hundred times, and I'm sure I've said it here as well, but principles that would apply this in everyday life for single people would be things like this. Nothing good happens after midnight, right? Be in the right place at the right time. Also, nothing good happens when alone together watching a movie under a blanket. That's folly. It is not going to end well. And all the married people are like, yep, he's exactly right, because we've had our own experiences with that. And then thirdly, nothing good happens when pretending to play house together and just sleeping over in the other room. I'm not going to sleep in the same bed or sleep in the same part. I'm just going to stay over. It's not going to end well. And and the big tragedy is, well, maybe you can do it once or twice and you seem to have dodged the bullet, but it's coming. That's being in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people. That's not your person you're supposed to be doing this with. So wisdom from the life of David, learning from his folly, that is all the bad of it. J.R.R. Tolkien has recorded for us, it's a gift to us, We have his letters to his sons. 
And if you've not seen, the, seen these or read these, you can find these online. But listen to his advice as a believer to his own sons on this practical subject of sexuality. He writes to his sons, This is a fallen world. Now listen to his biblical world and life view, by the way. This is a fallen world. The dislocation of the sex instinct is one of the chief symptoms of the fall. The devil is endlessly ingenious, and sex is his favorite subject. He can capitalize on romantic and tender moments, watching a movie under a blanket, as well as on our baser and more animal-like ones. Do you hear what he's saying to his sons? And you know he's saying it from his own experience, his own human lived experience. He's like, boys, you need to never forget. You live in a fallen world. And there is a devil who wants to undo you. And he will take your appetite and your appetite for sexuality. And he will do anything he can to trip you up to ruin that good gift of God. So have your radars up, boys, and don't be easy subjects. Don't be easy prey to the devil. See what he's trying to do, and he'll work through your romantic, good-seeming relationships and try to screw those up, and then he'll work through your more animal-like base lusts. He'll do it either way he can do it, any way he can do it. That's wisdom from a father to his sons. It's a biblical world and life view on a sensitive subject given to his sons. And we can benefit from that. I encourage you fathers of sons to read those letters even today. We're then given the consequences of David's failure. And this is not in the passage we read, but the verses later. So just very quickly, there is consequence for David's sin. And this is the spiraling consequences of sin you're familiar with from his story. His, his consequences would include pregnancy with Bathsheba, which would cause him then to panic. He then becomes a scheming liar, trying to manufacture a way to get out of the consequences of his sin. And none of that works according to plan. He is then a murderer. He then is marred by this sin for the rest of his life. And yet God's mercy and use of him continues because God showed him what the love that would not let him go the same love that we sang about earlier all of this is an example of the ruin of sin and it's all bad it's bad it's bad it's bad this good subject of sexuality that God gave his people here's how it looks when it's gone bad when it's gone wrong adultery polygamy fornication all of those things the Bible says are bad, and you know that, and you're convinced of it. But it only gets worse from here, and that is the ugly. So the good, the bad, and it gets worse to the ugly, and this is the hardest part of the sermon. But the ugly of human sexuality, so the bad was unkept boundaries given in Genesis. The ugly is unkept definitions as God has defined sexuality. Remember we said in previous weeks on this doctrine of sin that Satan is like a vandal. 
He wants to vandalize God's creation. He wants to vandalize God's gift. And sex is his favorite subject. So Satan loves to vandalize the holy gift of sexuality. What God had created with order, he wants to bring chaos. Where God gave definition and boundaries, he wants to remove boundaries and he wants to change the definitions. And that's what we see happening in our culture now more than we've ever seen it. Radical redefinitions of what God has said is holy. In the last 10 years, we have seen marriage redefined in our state and in our our culture, in our country. The family redefined. All things sexual have been redefined in the last 10 years. So I was at Erskine as the campus ministry for 20 years, and I taught on this subject three times like this. The very first time I did it, I remember not even having thought about addressing gender and how many genders are there and who are the persons that can be married. But by the second time I taught it, that was the number one issue. Who could marry? How many genders are there? And if you want to have your mind blown, go and Google how many genders are there. And you will get some astronomical numbers. And even my saying that is hate speech in our culture. I I understand that. But remember, we have blueprints. As believers, we have blueprints of how we believe things are supposed to be. So there's been radical redefinitions in our culture. And the result of radical redefinitions is unrestrained relations. There are no rules. There are no boundaries. You get to customize your settings, right? Never mind the default mode of the manufacturer. We'll make our own definitions and we'll do this according to our own appetites. And what has that led to? You can find in in your newspaper, as I did this week, current, modern, recent stories, of course of homosexuality, but of pedophilia and even bestiality. That is what our culture has done in redefining and customizing according to their own appetites what they personally would want to do with sexuality. And what has that led to? A radical redefinition has led to unrestrained relations. And you know what that has led to in our world? Rampant disease. That gift of sexuality given by God to His people that is supposed to bind people together as a blessing now becomes the context and setting for the spreading of disease. Chlamydia, gonorrhea, HIV, AIDS, hepatitis, herpes, syphilis, syphilis, HPV. Go to cdc.org and count how many diseases they are and learn how they affect the human person and disintegrate and harm people and families. Sex that was intended to be such a good blessing now becomes the source of the most pain and discomfort. It is is a curse for these people. Outside of the blueprints, it won't be constructive. It will be destructive. Now more on this uncomfortable subject. I just have to do this. Because we live in a fallen world and it it is ugly. 
pornography and the rampant industry seeking to expose and addict every one of us, and especially our children, preying upon our children, hoping that they will be addicted and then become consumers that they can then make a profit off of. That is the world in which we live. Aggressive political extremism throughout our culture, trying to radically redefine bathrooms and locker rooms and sports team, seeking to redefine gender and who belongs and who can change clothes in a room. That is the culture in which we live. Sexual gender reassignment surgery. The transformation by mutilation of the flesh. And this being done on children. And efforts for this to be done without the consent of parents. These are the things, the ugly things that are happening. And it's all related to God's gifts in Genesis chapter 2. Some of you have seen the movie, and I have seen it. And I've taken my boys, and it is worth seeing. It is, it is tastefully done. But the sound of freedom, the story of Tim Ballard, the former U.S. government agent who embarks on a mission to rescue children from sex traffickers in Colombia. This is the world in which we live. The great gift of God for man and wife to unite them and to fill the earth with blessing. We now pray, our people pray upon one another. Human being praying upon human being. Praying upon the weakest of human beings. Stealing them for the sake of sexual perversion. Now all of that could be interpreted as hate speech, but none of it is. It's not my intention. My intention is not to offend, but it is to say, as Christians, we are given blueprints for how this thing is supposed to have worked. And things, as we've said in this series, are not the way they're supposed to be. Everything is messed up. Some people's dials and switches and knobs are turned way off into gross perversions. But none of us have our factory settings perfectly set as the Creator intended them to be. And if you're off by one tick mark, you're unholy and unacceptable to a holy God. And so the solution for all of us who are unholy, whether by a tick mark here or ten tick marks there, there's one way. And that's the story of Jesus that we have celebrated in our worship service. Now we look at this in our culture, and I think it is right to have the response of, well, the blueprints say this, the culture's doing this, it's all upside down. It's all wrong side up. It's all backwards. And it is. And that can put you and that can put me in a tense spot, especially when we're accused of hate speech or the culture would want to cancel us, expose us, and run us out, right? Well, let me share this story with the hope that it might help. Some 60 years ago, there was in the Metropolitan, the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art, there was a display, and I think maybe I've shared this story with you before. But the life works of Henry Matisse was on display in 1961. His works were displayed for 47 days. 
And there was one particular fan of that museum and of the works of Henry Matisse who went three times during those 47 days to see the art gallery and the display of his life work. On her third day, she sat looking at a piece of art called Le Bateau, the boat. And after seeing it for the third time, it occurred to her. That piece of art is upside down. And she looked at it and she thought, it, it, it is, it's upside down. But 116,000 people over the course of 47 days had passed through and looked at all that art. And nobody had said anything. But as she looked at it and as she knew what she knew about the creator of that art, she was convinced it's, it's upside down. So her name was Genevieve Habert, and she was a stockbroker. She went to a security guard and said, excuse me, I'm just a stockbroker, but I'm a, a fan of Henry Matisse, and that piece of art is upside down. And what do you think that he did? He laughed at her and dismissed her. So she went and found somebody who would listen to her and they finally looked at it and they concluded, she's exactly right. We had hung up this piece of art upside down for 47 days and nobody knew it. Now, if you're wondering to yourself, well, how could anybody make that mistake? Because it's modern art, that's why. So that's, that's how it's supposed to be seen, but it was put up like that. And the only difference, what she noticed is the, uh, the extension of the boat right here, maybe you can see, is not seen in the shadow. So that is the real thing, and, and that is the shadow of the boat on the water. So why do I tell you that story? You know, we're looking at sexuality in our culture, and we rightly conclude it's upside down. It's supposed to be a blessing, and it's become a source of pain and perversion and taking advantage of people. That's wrong. But you can feel like, mm, I don't want to be canceled. I don't want to be accused of hate speech, so I'll, I won't go talk to the security guard and point out the error that I'm convinced is wrong because I know the author of it. But she said, I'm going to do, this needs to be made right. And she did that. That, that little stockbroker did that. I think you and I live in that tension. I know that I do. You're surrounded by all kinds of things, but you don't have to hate the sin the way that they might think that you do. I heard last, just last night Alistair Begg speak to this. I'll give you his words on this. He said, listen, Christians, because the Bible is true, I cannot hate homosexuals. I can't hate them. The Bible doesn't allow it. But also, because the Bible is true, I cannot affirm homosexuality. Because the Bible's true, I'm left in a tension. I can't conform the Bible to their appetites, but I can't hate them either. And so we're willing to live in the tension. And listen, kindly and respectfully say, we believe that there are blueprints that says the way of blessing is this way, and anything outside of those blueprints is eventually going to lead to destruction and hurt. It's not going to lead to what you want it to. It's kind of like, to mix my metaphors or illustrations, you overhear someone talking about taking a trip in a car, and you hear, wait a minute, that's not the right route to get there. 
and I know what they're looking for, and you tell them lovingly, you could go that way, but you're not going to get there, so you need to turn this way to get to your destination. We're caught in that tension of having to kindly and respectfully say, what you're hoping that will lead to is, is not going to come to the conclusion that you're hoping for. It puts us in attention, but it's the right and the loving thing to do. So what hope is there for any of us? We have this classic view of sexuality. And we have a new school, a new cultural approach to it. That's the tension we're in. Sorry, just one more illustration. So in my household, we actually watched a documentary this week on classic Coca-Cola. Have you seen that? documentary. It's the story of, of how Coca-Cola started and then New Coke. Those of you my age remember when New Coke was introduced. And do you remember the result of that? It was outrage. They were convinced this new recipe for Coca-Cola, everybody's going to love it. This was back in the 80s, mid-80s, I think. And, and people ended up hating New Coke eventually. And what did they do? The people called out we want the old recipe back. That's the tension we're living in on the subject of sexuality. We're the ones saying, hey, new Coke is not going to work. Classic Coke, Genesis chapter 2, sexuality. That's the beverage that you're looking for. So think about that, especially as you're trying to communicate this to other people. So what hope is there? Is there hope for any of us? Those of us in the room who've been damaged from the past... Those of us who are currently in the throes of sexual sin right now, is there hope for redemption? Can things be made right? Can things be made new again? Can I be made whole again? And the answer is yes. There is a way. There is one way. One single way according to Scripture. And this is the last point. This is the beautiful of sexuality. It is the story of redemption. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 3 through 8. Listen to what we're told, speaking to believers. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust, like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you His Holy Spirit. Now there's the good news. There's the gospel. The God who wills for you to be sanctified gives you His Holy Spirit that you may be sanctified. So the good news is this. There is both power for change and a new appetite for sexual righteousness that God can give His people. That's what the Lord does. 
And the only way I know how to, to bring this to life is to tell a specific story of a specific person. And I've spoken of her several times, and some of you are familiar with her. But it is the beautiful, redemptive story of Rosaria Butterfield. If you don't know that name, you can hear her testimony. You can read her testimony. It's all online. But if that's a new name to you, let me summarize in this way. In the 1990s, Rosaria Butterfield was a professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University. Her specialty was in feminist theory and queer theory. She became a lesbian in her 20s, and she became a critical piece in the LGBTQ movement and what it has grown into today. She was a leader, she was aggressive, she was political, she was powerful, she was effective. But then in 1999, through a long series of events I won't describe here, she became converted to faith in Christ. And these are her words concerning her appetite having been homosexual and now living in the tension of a new life and being a new person. She talks about shame. She talks about how sin cannot be tamed and we should not pretend otherwise, but that how sin is ultimately lame. It is not more powerful than the Holy Spirit in us. So three quotations from her, and I hope this is helpful. She said this. I'll read it from here. It was only after I met my risen Lord that I ever felt shame for my sexual sin and my sinful attractions and history. Conversion to faith in Christ brought with it a train wreck of contradictory feelings, ranging from liberty to shame. Conversion also left me confused. While it was clear that God forbade sex outside of biblical marriage, there's your boundaries, it was not clear to me what I should do with the complex matrix of desires and attractions that churned within me until I was able to see how God intended to replace my shame with hope. Now what is that? That's 1 Thessalonians 4. That God the Holy Spirit can bring hope for change into the life of a sinner. She goes on now to talk about how sin cannot be tamed, and you are a fool like King David if you think otherwise. Listen to what she says. Deal with sin as sin. Don't let sin in the house. Don't buy it a collar and a leash and give it a sweet pet name. You can't tame or domesticate sin. If you let the baby tiger of sin into your house and you name it Fluffy, don't be surprised when you wake up one day and find Fluffy eating you alive. That's how sin works. And then lastly, that sin is lame. It's weaker than God's work in us. She says this, Christian, remember who you are. If you are in Christ... You are a son or daughter of the King. Rise up and do battle with your sin when it seeks to distort that reality. 
you are not defined by your sin, but by your Savior. Amen and amen that God would work in the life of a person to bring this beautiful transformation that's, that's so visible to us. But not only does He do these big pictures of redemption in maybe some of what we would call the ugly sins of life, but He does it with the smaller sins that our culture would call pet sins. The things maybe that some of you identify more with. If you're one tick mark off, you're not holy. And that describes every single one of us in the room, every single breath of every days of our lives. What hope do we have but that we can be whole again because of the blood of Jesus? So whatever your circumstances personally, if you're veering left, if you're veering right, if you're wandering from God's boundaries and God's definitions, can you be whole again? Can you return to the path of what God would have for you? Absolutely. Absolutely. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So as you hear this sensitive subject with the balm of the gospel applied to it, let's pray that God would work that truth deeply into our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would now work, even as we sing a hymn that celebrates your justification and sanctification of your people. Lord, would we believe it? And as we go into the world, Lord, would you give us a renewed fight against perverted appetites in our lives? Would you encourage the weary? Would you strengthen the lonely? Would you provide fellowship where it's needed? And Lord, may we be a people who seek to live according to the blueprints, though we do it imperfectly. May we honor you with our bodies and with the living of our lives. And may we do it in Jesus' name. Amen.